The Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. And you'll see it on the screen and also on page 1609 if you have one of the church Bibles. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman, seeing she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Let's move on to talk about the scripture passage that we read this morning. A couple of introductory comments before we get started. One of my favorite parts of the Bible are the encounters that Jesus has with individual people in the Gospels. The Gospels, of course, are rich with material. You've got Jesus' direct teaching of people, descriptions of miracles, prophecy, historical details about Jesus' death and resurrection, all sorts of theological material we can draw on. But I love all those aspects, but also the encounters that Jesus has with individuals, like the rich young ruler, for example, or the woman at the well, or the paralytic that's lowered through the roof and healed, or um, the widow at Nan, or the woman who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, etc., etc. And the reason I love them is that these encounters teach us something about who Jesus is, and they teach us something about who we are, and they teach us something about the relationship that we can have with him in a very powerful way. The other thing that really appeals to me about these particular parts of the Gospels is that from an English teacher point of view, because I love texts and thinking about texts, is that these encounters prove to me that these texts could not possibly have been made up. They're one of the many reasons I think that the Gospel accounts have to be exactly what the authors claim they are, just an eyewitness account of the things that Jesus said and did. And why do I say that? Well, if these Gospels are just a scam in which a group of men got together and made up a story in order to present a Messiah that people would follow, there are so many countless details in the records of Jesus' interactions with individual people that simply would not have been included. In fact, the writers couldn't have even envisioned them, I don't think, because Jesus, the Jesus they present, is so incredibly radical in those encounters. It would have been outside of the paradigm of their own thinking. No self-respecting Jew trying to create an appealing Messiah, for example, would have had Jesus speak at the well to a Samaritan, let alone to a woman, and definitely wouldn't have included an account of a prostitute coming and breaking alabaster flask of perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping them with her hair. It's disturbing. No writer that's attempting to create a dignified teacher would have him welcome children in the era or touch lepers or turn tables over in the temple. 
This is not an appealing Messiah if they're trying to make this up. In fact, almost every encounter Jesus has would have been bewildering to people and actually make him harder to swallow, if you like, which is exactly what the Gospels record, that he became harder to swallow for the people. Anyway, that's some introductory comments. One last thing before we get started. Um, I'm going to be referring to a verse... Thanks, Nathan. Um, as we go through this, which isn't in the actual passage, and it's these really amazing words of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's just pray before we begin, Lord. We know that your word is the ultimate authority. And my words are not. But I pray that this morning as we share and think and explore this passage, that you would be the one teaching us by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This encounter that Jesus has is actually recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. Because I'm a teacher, I couldn't help but touch on what synoptic means, because some of you may not know. That's okay. Actually, you probably all do, so I'm really just talking to myself. Sin means together. You know, as in synonym, synchronized, synergy. Optic, obviously, to see or to view, you know, optician, etc. Um, synoptic is to see together. So these gospel accounts that are all in common in that they refer to similar stories and they have a similar chronology, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, other synoptic gospels. John, if you read it, is quite different. It's much more theological. And so it is the non-synoptic gospel. Anyway, this account of the woman with the blood flow is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, which is pretty powerful. And remember that, because I forget to say it probably at the end, how exciting it is that this woman's story has gone down in history in such a way. One of the few that's recorded in every one. But let's have a look at what's said in those other Gospels. You know when people say that there are contradictions in the Bible, um, I think when you find them in the Gospels, they're actually, again, proof of their authenticity. If a major event happened right now in this room and later to find out what that was, somebody drew three people aside and asked them individually what occurred, it would be the differences in the story, the slight focus that actually alters what it seems that they're saying that actually makes it true. And it's the combination of those accounts together that make it a genuine account in total. And that's exactly what any of the contradictions people claim are in the gospel accounts are. They're actually, in fact, proof that this is indeed an eyewitness account. Well, Matthew records this story the following way. Very quickly, actually. Just then, some events happening out there in Croatia this morning. It's pretty exciting there, too. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned to her and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Mark records it this way. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? (laughs) 
You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Let's think firstly about this woman's situation, which I'm going to suggest to you is pretty desperate. There's the obvious desperation in her circumstances, which is her physical suffering, a physical suffering that she's undergone for 12 years, a constant daily bleeding, which would weaken her physically. I don't know if you've ever had a condition before when you didn't quite know when it was going to be fixed or even know necessarily what it was. And somehow the physical burden of that's all the worse because you don't know when it's going to end. Surely her physical situation would be added to with that particular aspect. We're told in Mark's gospel that she's constantly sought cures. And not only has she spent all of her income doing that, but she's not got any better. In fact, we're told she grew worse. So physically, her situation is incredibly difficult. Worsened by the fact now she has no financial resources. She spent them all. And we can assume because of the conditions she has that she's of marriageable age. We can be sort of, you know... We can suggest what we know what this situation is, don't we? We don't have to say it up front, up front. Um, Yet, given her circumstances, this bleeding, I would imagine that she hasn't been attractive to any possible suitor and is unlikely to be married. In the culture of the time and without any financial resources now, she's in a pretty dire circumstance. But I want to suggest that her situation is worse than that. There's some psychological suffering that she's dealing with as well. There are things about herself that she doesn't want others to know, things that mean that she's carrying this secret burden. Just look at the way that she slinks into this crowd, that she's so afraid that she doesn't want others to know what's actually happened to her. She no doubt feels incredibly alone. Pain and suffering itself is incredibly isolating. And this particular condition comes with a terrible social stigma. And we're about to learn about that in just a moment that's going to make things worse for her. And that feeling of never being free, of burdened with the thing that's gone on and on and on that she's been so desperate to have healed but isn't, must be having a psychological impact on her. I want to suggest her situation is also problematic spiritually. We find these words in Leviticus. Sorry about the bluntness of them, but it is the Bible. (laughs) When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water, And he will be unclean until evening. She's considered and would consider herself unclean. Everything she touches, including clothing, becomes unclean. And she's tried to resolve this for 12 years. Surely in that time she sought God and sought God for healing over this. And that hasn't come. It wouldn't surprise me if she's starting to feel rejected and abandoned and dirty before God himself, particularly in a time when illness was considered to be the curse of God, where if you're sick, then the thought was you'd sinned in some way. So she must feel very separated and very isolated. And 
look, she doesn't know when she comes in and touches Jesus' garment if attention is paid to that, whether because she's made this great teacher unclean, things are going to backfire on her and people are going to have a tremendous go at her. Jesus could have a tremendous go at her for making him unclean. Little was she to know that actually the whole core of Jesus' ministry is to become unclean for us. How lost and broken and desperate and hopeless this woman must have felt. And what an amazing thing is about to happen to her. And I'm going to suggest that actually the obvious amazing thing isn't the most amazing thing. The obvious amazing thing is that after 12 years and after all those solutions she's tried and all that desperation, she comes and she touches the edge of a garment and kapow in an instant. She knows it's healed. She knows because she's borne it for so long. It's gone. That is incredible. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. She's finally found rest from this burden that she's faced, from the great physician. And for us all, we can know in the things that we're facing, the things that we're burdened with, the things that we feel there's no solution about, no end in sight, no way out. He says the same words to us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's amazing that she's physically healed, but it's not the most amazing thing. Here's a perhaps more amazing thing. In the midst of this crowd, this mingling, messy crowd, this anonymous group of people, Jesus knew she was there. He knew that this one individual had touched him. Now, the disciples point out how ridiculous it is that Jesus would pay any attention to this one person in this situation. But he knew she was there. He was aware of one person in the flurry of that enormous crowd. He's aware of you and he's aware of me in the midst of 7.5 billion people. He knows us. He knows us all individually. He knows our hopes and our dreams and our pains and our suffering, our difficulties, our wants. He knows everything about us, the most intimate details of our lives, one by one. Now that sounds crazy. And if I went out to anybody who didn't know this God and said, the God of the universe who's created everything knows you individually like that, it sounds like arrogance, but it isn't. It's actually the thing that the word of God declares. In fact, here's an amazing passage of scripture. Jesus said this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? What he's meaning is that's cheap. They're not worth very much. They're only tiny. And yet, even though they're insignificant, none of them is forgotten by God. And he goes on to say, yet indeed the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Wow. Jesus just said that God the Father is conscious of every sparrow. And he knows us so intimately that he knows the very number of hairs on our head. Now, for some people, they're making the job for God a little bit easier. Other people, obviously, a little bit harder. But nonetheless, it's a superlative statement trying to indicate the nature of his knowledge about us. It's not us saying that God knows us. It's God saying he does. And in this case, with this woman, you can see Jesus' knowledge of her. Don't ever think you're alone Not understood, forgotten, or ignored. There is one who is always with you, even until the end of the age. One who will never leave you or forsake you. One who never slumbers or sleeps. One who knows every tear that you cry. Come to him, all you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. 
Christianity is a faith of being known and being understood on the deepest level by the most powerful God. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. Even if we've known that for a long time, it's something we need to keep preaching to ourselves and reminding ourselves it's not just some fanciful idea we've come up with. It's the declaration of scripture that we have access to God in such a way. Now, if you're a thinking person, and you all are, you've probably already thought to yourself, hang on a minute in this encounter. What Jesus did to this woman was cruel. He made her come forward. He exposed her. He drew attention to her. He put her in a situation where he, she had to tell his story to make it obvious that she's unclean and that now all these people around her would be unclean. And what makes that possibly worse is that I have a feeling Jesus already knows this woman's situation. He often knows things about people. Think about the woman at the well. He knew how many husbands she had, what her current living situation was. I dare say he knows what her circumstances are. And even if not, it doesn't take a genius to work out that a woman who's come in such a way, approaching, slinking through the crowd, is burdened with something. That drawing attention to her, we would know it. We've got enough emotional intelligence to work that out. Jesus definitely would. So what is he doing? Does this not seem cruel? Is this not one of those details that if you were writing this story and trying to fabricate something, you'd leave out? But I put it to you that the reason is that Jesus actually knows her deeper need. Remember, her circumstances aren't just physical. That's not her only problem. She's got psychological burden. You can see it from the way that she comes into this crowd. Um, And she's got a spiritual burden. She's come to ask Jesus, well, not ask, but to um, acquire for herself a touch from the outside, an external healing. But Jesus wants to reach to the inside to provide a healing for her heart and for her spirit as well as for her body. And often... Jesus knows, God knows more about what we need than we know ourselves. Sometimes we can be so focused on our spiritual, uh, physical needs, our challenges, illness, work demands, complications in relationship, loss, whatever it is, it becomes so important to us that we think the key thing is to have that thing fixed or changed. And sometimes we can even get to the point where we start questioning God. Why is he not fixing or changing this physical thing? But sometimes he's working on something so much bigger. Using the challenges and the difficulties to produce something wonderful, something eternal, something larger than we are. No wonder so many New Testament writers exclaim that we should be rejoicing in trials. Now this woman had a trial for 12 years. Something's about to happen to her because of that condition. That's going to put everything into perspective. She's about to have an encounter with the Lord of the universe. She didn't want this next encounter. She wanted to get out of there without being noticed. But Jesus stops her. And I think the key to what he's doing in her life is in the words that he speaks to her. He says to her daughter, daughter, a term of affection and endearment, of drawing her in, of saying, I have relationship with you. It's the same thing he says to us. We're adopted as children of God. He calls us son, daughter, with affection, with a drawing in, with a belonging. This is a woman who probably hasn't felt she's belonged to anyone or anything for 12 years. And then he says to her, take heart or be of good cheer. In other words, I see the problem. I see what's really burdening you. Your heart needs to be lifted. Your soul needs to be touched, not just your body. And then in front of all of these people, after she's told her story, he says to her, your faith has made you well. 
He just affirmed her, congratulated her, elevated her above all these people in this crowd and tells her that he's rejoicing in her. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Do you know that is the same for us? That he loves us and he cares for us. He values us. He appreciates us and he rejoices in us. And we can sometimes think to ourselves, what is it that God would have to rejoice in in me? What have I got? That woman came to Jesus thinking she had nothing at all, nothing but brokenness and emptiness and a feeling of rejection. What did she have to offer God? Only one thing, her faith. That's all she had to offer him. Do you know, we cannot come to God until we realize the only thing we can offer him is our faith. That is all. And that's when things can start to happen. So only when we come to him and we know we need a savior, we know that we're broken, we know that there's nothing we can do about the situation ourselves, that he starts to transform us and to do something in us. As Jeff shared last week, he comes and he abides with us. And then he rejoices in us because we're righteous. Just get that for a minute. He rewards us with the work that he's done. And then he rejoices in us and rewards us because of what's in us. It's like, I don't know, a a parent who helps a child or does everything on a child's homework and then the child gets an A+. And when the child returns home with the A+, the parents celebrate and rejoice and take the child to Disneyland for having got the A+. I I know that smacks slightly of academic dishonesty, but you get the point. It's like God does the work and then he rejoices in us because the work's done in us. It's like this double whammy of blessing. It's amazing. But he does that for all of us. And what incredible rest that brings. All you have to bring is your faith. Come to me, all you who are weary and have a burdened. Let's just stop here. Can I just stop for one second and think about this verse for a minute? What is it that the rest is that Jesus is talking about here? I think the key to this rest is actually in what it produces. Rest for your souls. This is not a physical weariness that Jesus is talking about that we come with. It's a spiritual one, one of the soul. It's the weariness that comes from the constant striving to make ourselves acceptable, to make the grade, to grasp the thing that's going to give us self-esteem. Feeling like we can actually only ever come to God if we're good or pure and doing the right thing. That's what he's coming and saying he's going to give us rest from. That was that woman's real burden. That feeling of maybe being unacceptable before God. All other religions except Christianity are founded on that basis, that you must work to possibly win the reward. But that kind of religion can't promise you rest. No other religion can make this promise that you can have rest because you must keep working. You must keep praying. You must keep fasting. You must keep making pilgrimages. You must keep giving money. You must work, 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 work until you are weary, carrying the burden of needing to make yourself acceptable to God. Only Jesus says, let me give you rest. Let me take that burden from you. And those people who don't even believe in religion actually have the same burden as well, to be honest, because they're living in a world where that says that they must earn money and buy a house and drive the right car and have the latest gadgets and work hard and please people and work and work and work. Work until you're weary, carrying the burden of needing to make yourself acceptable to the world around you. And only Jesus says, stop striving for that. Come to me. I will give you rest. The rest comes from the fact that he does the work. It's not our work. 
so we can rest. Have faith in him and he does everything else. Well, that's what happened to this woman. She came trembling because she had nothing to offer, because she was broken and felt unworthy. All she could offer was faith. It's the state we all need to reach. She was wearied and burdened with a physical problem, but Jesus knew her real need and touched that. So I put it to you as we finish up. The most amazing thing that happened to that woman that day wasn't her physical healing, but it was the words that Jesus spoke to her. The encounter that she had with him, the affirmation that she received that undoes any question in her mind about how God might feel about her. Daughter, your take heart, your faith has made you well. And so Jesus says to her, go in peace. Go in peace. She wouldn't have got that peace if all she'd got was a physical healing. She gets the peace from the encounter with God, with the living God, the God who made the universe, the God who sees her and knows her. And Jesus wants us to have that same deep encounter. He doesn't want us to be people who just slink in and touch the edges, come to church, do a couple of religious things or spiritual practices during the week. He wants us to be in relationship with him, communicating with him, building a spiritual intimacy with him. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Boldly, boldly we can come to his throne of grace. Christianity's not a faith of whimpering and tentativeness and being afraid. It's a faith of coming, not just to the edges and peeping through our fingers, but one of full immersion, a faith of full immersion, of absolute excess, of complete attention of the living God, always, every day, who calls us to speak to him and confide in him and to seek him. And what a loss if that woman didn't get to experience that true encounter with Jesus in that experience. What a loss if she didn't come out of that and realize that every day and in every way she is able to go boldly to the throne of grace. What a loss if we don't realize the same thing. You know, I reckon this story could have had a really sad outcome. I have a feeling that if she'd refused... When Jesus drew attention and kept asking, he's asked twice really, who did this? If she'd refused the second time, I don't think Jesus would have forced her out. The words are come, come to me. Not I'm going to force you to, not I'm going to demand that you do. It's an invitation, come. And so eventually Jesus would have moved on and the crowd would have dissipated if she had not spoken up. And the woman would have slipped away. And sure, she would have left that day having the physical healing, but she would have missed out on the greater thing. She would have missed out on an encounter with the creator of the universe who loves her and affirms her and gives her a peace that makes her heart of good cheer. Sure, it was hard for her. She was reluctant and she came trembling. She didn't know what to expect. Would the crowd be angry? Would Jesus reject her? What's this going to be? She came though. Frightened and nervous, she came. And that encounter meant that her true weariness and burden, the weariness of trying to make yourself acceptable and see something in you worth something, that that weariness was addressed. She was finally given a rest that reached to her very soul. What a sad thing it would have been if she'd missed out on that.
What a sad thing it would be if any of us missed out on that. If only we slink through and touch the edges, if we let the opportunity pass, if we choose to just be a a garment toucher in our Christianity, or will we choose to be somebody who falls down before him in a desire to experience the fullness of the relationship that's on offer? It was hard for her. Embarrassing, vulnerable. And it can be hard for us when God calls us, when he touches that deep part of us, when we know we need to confess, when we know we need to bear ourselves before him or maybe before others, when we know we need to make a commitment, when we know we need to give something up. But what a loss not to do it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what your word teaches us about how you care for us, see us, know us, love us, desire to affirm us and to rejoice in us. You so often see the deeper need that we have when our attention is so focused on the physical and yours on the soul within us. Thank you for your amazing promise to us that if we come to you, you will grant us rest. Help us not to be people who let the occasion pass or the opportunity slip away, but to be people who grasp a hold of the fullness of what you're offering and enter into relationship with you that is deep and daily and bold. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.